morning, church family and guests, both those here and watching from afar. If you are watching online, welcome. We're glad you're able to join us this way, especially if you're sick or otherwise unable to attend. That said, we do feel compelled to remind each other from time to time that physically gathering is a priority for us because our faith, it's an embodied faith. Just a couple examples of how our physical senses are engaged on a morning like this one. When we physically situate our bodies in the midst of the Sunday morning gathering, we maybe hear the older saint next to us get passionate during the chorus of all I have is Christ. Right? We taste real food and drink as the Lord directed in his supper, as we did recently. We see the brother raise his hand a few rows in front of us and the sister shed a tear over here. In other words, God intends us to use all our senses during worship. All five working together to form us into certain sorts of people. And that's not happening for you today if you're at home. Right? You're missing much of what's happening here, though not all of it. Your senses are sending you competing inputs at home. And of course, what you're doing at home is better than nothing if you're sick. That's why we're continuing the live stream. Right? But if you are physically able to be here, then yes, there's inconvenience in it. Yes, there's even risk involved in it. But over the last 2,000 years... There's always been some measure of inconvenience and even risk in attending church, almost always. And so someday soon, we would like you to consider gathering with us again. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. When I was 24, two or three older adults in my life who knew me well, completely independently from one another, they didn't know each other, recommended to me the same book. Uh, should have been a warning, but I was naive. The book happened to be A Severe Mercy. I think I've got a picture of it here. Uh, yeah, that's what the cover looks like. Anyone read it? Okay, a lot, I think we have, so you'll appreciate this. What I knew from the cover is this is a love story. And my long-distance girlfriend, Sarah, and I, we were in love. So we started reading and about halfway through, we were loving this book. It told this story of this couple who did everything together. If one of them read a book, the other read the book. If one of them got a job, the other get a job in the same place. They vowed never to let anything come between them. Any activity one did, the other would do. They called it the shining barrier around their relationship. Uh, so Sarah and I went to one of those painting places on a, a date once and painted a decorative plate with an artistic depiction of our own shining barrier. Truly inspirational book. Right around then, my mom asked me if I ever got around to reading that book she recommended. I said, oh, yeah, loving it. Uh, thanks so much for recommending. It's been incredibly inspirational to Sarah and me. And she asked, how far into the book are you? Um, and when I told her we were, about, we were about halfway, her confusion seemed to disappear. Uh, I said, hey, tell me what you think about the second half. Uh, I don't want to spoil the book because it's excellent. Uh, let's just say in the second half of the book, the couple realizes with the help of uh, 18 awesome letters from their friend C.S. Lewis that the near total obsessive enmeshment of their lives had actually been pretty unhealthy. And so when I finished the book, I finally realized that all these adults in my life, they weren't just trying to recommend a good book they thought I'd resonate with. They were trying to get Sarah and me to understand we didn't have to talk on the phone for three hours every night. 
C.S. Lewis's letters to the Vinokins uh, showed Sarah and I things about ourselves. And if letters written to others can show us things about ourselves, I think God's Spirit might want to do just that for us these next seven weeks. In fact, I, kn I know he does. Would you open with me to Revelation chapter 2, if you haven't already? Let's open there. Um, Amy Mueller, I was chomping at the bit and just got up here and started preaching, but you're going to come up and read the word for us. Oh, no, who is it? Yeah, Beth Bryant. Come on. Sorry. I, come on up. It's time to read it. We haven't read the word yet, and I'm, I'm getting into it. Come on. We need it. letters to the seven churches, the letter to Ephesus. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, and who walks among the seven lampstands. I know your works and your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do this, yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Beth. Uh, if you're newer to the church, we are making room this spring uh, to, for a sober assessment of where we are both individually and as a church. We're calling it, you are here. Uh, how does God see us? Is his message for us in the early months of 2022 one of praise, one of rebuke, a little of both? And our hope and prayer, even our expectation, is not that we'll beat ourselves up and become overwhelmed by despair during this series. Also not that we'll blissfully ignore challenging words because they're uncomfortable. But rather that we'll come out on the other end of this in May with a deeper sense of assurance, walk in this path of blessed assurance, deep assurance, uh, deeper than the one we had in January, more solid confidence regarding where we stand with God. Now, it's not easy to determine or discern how God sees us, but we think a great starting place is in these seven short letters addressed to specific first-century churches found in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And by exploring what Jesus says to them, those churches, given their situation, we have a starting point to at least start to prayerfully attempt to ascertain what he might say to us, North Suburban Church, given our present-day situation. So in that sense, the next seven scripture texts are going to be like holding up seven mirrors for the life of our church. We'll have a chance to ask where we see ourselves in each text. 
And since it's likely that that exploration will often result in a mixture of affirmation and challenge, we'll need God's help to receive his word with humility, sincerely desiring to know the truth about ourselves, whether that truth is good, bad, or ugly. So you remember last week, Dr. Lau primed the pump for these seven letters. He reminded us that the one who wrote these seven letters uh, from the risen Jesus is the Apostle John. And John does so from exile on the island of Patmos, probably during the reign of the emperor Domitian, uh, around 90 AD, somewhere around there. The recipients are seven churches in what's modern-day Turkey that fell along a circular trade route. So today we look at the first letter, the letter of the church at Ephesus, which probably comes first both because it's a huge important city from which all these other churches were originally launched and because it makes the most sense geographically for the letter to be circulated this way. So I think the message of the letter may become clear once we explore four questions that this letter answers in sequence. First, who's writing? Then what's good in Ephesus? Then what's bad in Ephesus? And then what must be done? Who's writing? What's good? What's bad? what must be done. This is actually the pattern that most of these seven letters will follow. So first, who's writing? You might say, well, we know who's writing. Get on with it. After all, chapter one, remember we did note that Revelation is a message given by God to the risen Christ to deliver to an angel who uh, would give it to the Apostle John who would write down the message. That whole process animated by the Holy Spirit, right? That's review. But here's what's new. Jesus actually introduces each of the seven letters with a different description of himself. You can see the chart there. Don't try to write that down. The point I'm making is same Jesus, but he doesn't introduce himself the same way to any two of the seven cities. Each city receives a unique snapshot highlighting a different aspect of who he is. Most of the snapshots come from the trove of images we already saw in chapter 1, and as we saw, even those images were mostly derived from Old Testament scriptures. But here's the thing. Which image of Jesus is given to which of the churches is not arbitrary. In fact, it's quite purposeful. In other words, the picture of Jesus that's given in the introduction to a given letter both primes the pump for what he's going to say in that letter and reinforces the message of that particular letter. Does that make sense? So how does the risen Jesus describe himself to the church at Ephesus? Here's Ephesus today. You can picture uh, the glory that it would have been when uh, all of these buildings were standing. We need to know two things about Ephesus to understand what's happening here. Uh, they call it pressure and prestige. Pressure and prestige. First, pressure. This is a city under immense pressure at the time that this is written to cave in to the world around them. When it comes to wickedness, Ephesus was... Las Vegas, but less reserved. It was a free-for-all. I mean, imagine something as simple as walking your kids to school as a Christian in Ephesus. There's maybe no way to get there besides to pass the Artemis Temple, because it's the largest temple in the whole world at the time, four times bigger than the Parthenon. Fine, got to pass the temple, but wait. At this temple to Artemis, there are literally thousands of priests employed who openly are designated to engage passers-by in prostitution for the sake of the goddess who's worshipped there. Can you imagine those conversations with your kids? But that's not all. Imagine what it was like for Christians in Ephesus at this time, now that the emperor Domitian had declared Ephesus his neochorus, or guardian of his temple. 
meaning that Ephesus and the temple to Emperor Domitian that was found there would now serve as the global hub for Domitian worship. We think it's invasive to have to show a vax card to work out. Imagine having to offer a prayer to Emperor Domitian just to be granted entry to the grocery store. Imagine having to sacrifice to Artemis just to get your professional trade license renewed for another year. That was life for a Christian in Ephesus. The pressure. Now the prestige. This was a Chicago or New York City level coastal city. The number four most populous city in the whole Roman Empire. An estimated 250,000 residents at the time that this was written. So out of all the seven churches, this one is the premier urban center. But the prestige of Ephesus wasn't just limited to its economic or political or demographic status. Actually, the church at Ephesus was historically the spiritual powerhouse of the seven as well. This is the original church from which the other six were launched. And uh, listen to some of the names on their list of pastors. First, it's planted by their first pastor, Paul. Two and a half years. First two and a half years of the church, he's their pastor. Then uh, he's replaced eventually by Timothy, his right-hand man. We know about Timothy. Then after some time, uh, they have a pastor named John, who is the disciple Jesus loved, the one that Jesus reclined on at the meal at meals, right? The one who's writing this book of Revelation. Paul, Timothy, John. Ephesus is the it church in Asia Minor. This is the one with the legacy of celebrity ministers. And I can't help but already notice a couple of similarities to North Suburban Church. We've been around a while, too, compared to other local churches. We've planted a couple of the other churches in this area. We've had some fantastic world-class ministers in years gone by. When other pastors see North Sub on my name tag at conferences, they invariably share stories of how this place was the hub. This was the it church in the area. How so many respected pastors all over the country now cut their teeth in ministry in these halls, preached their first sermons in this pulpit. So while we're not similar to Ephesus in every way, the pressure's not the same, at least not yet, in some ways we're quite similar. And many of you who have been here for decades carry that storied legacy and history with you as members of this church. So given the prestige and the pressure, how does Jesus introduce himself to a church like Ephesus? Here it is. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Stars and lampstands. Dr. Lau showed us last week in chapter one that holding the seven stars is a depiction of cosmic power. He showed us that the Roman emperors claimed to hold the seven stars in their hands and that Domitian, who's ruling at this time, even minted a coin depicting his son as doing such. So here comes Jesus to a people who are relentlessly hounded day after day to bow the knee to Domitian. He begins by saying, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand. Ephesians don't know at this point how much they're going to need that power. Because despite the impressiveness of their city, despite the leadership heritage of Paul, Timothy, and John, Jesus is about to share a hard word with them challenge that will take cosmic power to follow through on. But the one whose power will be made manifest to help them follow through on what they're called to is also the one who will be watching over them to see whether they follow through 
That's what's meant by this next phrase, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember what the lampstands are? The last verse of chapter 1 told us, the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then very next verse, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus holds the angels and walks among the churches. Why are the churches lampstands? Well, think about what a lampstand does. What does a lampstand do? Gives light, right? It does. That's, it gives light to a dark room. So it seems then that John, by the Holy Spirit, is picturing Asia Minor as that dark room. And the seven churches as gleaming lights there, shining Christ forth in the darkness as witnesses to who he is and what he's done. So what's Jesus doing then as he walks among the lampstands? It seems like he's acting as the priestly custodian, we could say. He's, he's examining the lampstands, making sure they're still shining brightly. He's trimming the wicks or doing what's needed to ensure that they continue to serve their purpose. That's how Jesus wants the Ephesian Christians to picture him as they read this letter. Cosmic power, holding angels in the universe in his hands, yet very near to them, inspecting their lampstands to make sure it's still functioning well as a witness to the world. That's who's writing. Now, what's good in Ephesus? What's good? Ephesus is one of the five of the seven churches that are commended by Jesus. So what is Ephesus commended for? Let's take a look. Verses 2 and 3, and then verse 6. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. And yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's verse 6. You can summarize it like this, and I think it got this language from a commentator. They're commended for their enduring zeal for doctrinal purity. What they're commended for is their enduring zeal for doctrinal purity. This church is working hard. They're enduring in that hard work, too. It's not just a flash in the pan. Uh, they are not growing weary in it, right? And the hard, potentially exhausting work they're doing seems largely to consist of contending for the truth. So they're testing people who call themselves apostles. They're finding them to be liars. Right? They're protecting each other from the harmful influence of these fakes, including these Nicolaitans who we'll talk about in future weeks. Friend, if you are guarded against the danger of the Christian faith becoming too heady, too much of an emphasis on doctrine, head knowledge. I get that. It's a real danger that our, what we know in our heads wouldn't connect with our hearts. We ought to be on guard against that. Yet, this is far from the only scripture that shows us doctrine is no small thing to Jesus. Even just a casual read through the New Testament makes it plain that false teaching is really harmful to people, potentially even leading them astray into eternal death. And so churches are consistently rebuked when they tolerate false doctrine, and they're commended when they deal firmly with false doctrine. And Ephesus, taught well by Paul, Timothy, and John, has continued since then to do the emotionally and spiritually taxing work of discerning right from wrong, affirming the good, calling out the bad, so the risen Jesus says, yes, I see that. This is a great job for that. 
Don't stop. I hate what those false teachers are doing. And so I'm glad that you hate their works too. This gives us our first you are here opportunity of today's sermon. Remember, that's what we're doing each week. You are here. What about us? Enduring zeal for doctrinal purity. The Ephesians hated what Jesus hates, do we? The Ephesians were firm with evil people, are we? The Ephesians tested the teaching that was put forward in their midst, do we? Or have we grown weary of that sort of exhausting work of discernment? What do you think? I'll acknowledge, I don't see the entirety of what's going on in the life of our church. The picture that Jesus sees of our church. But can I give my assessment of our zeal for doctrinal purity? Nobody's nodding their head, but I'm going to anyway. Um, I think that we, like Ephesus, have been pretty strong in this area, actually. Doctrine matters here at North Stop. If I'm sloppy or careless in my own preaching, as I have been at times, some of you reached out to me for clarification. That is such a sign of health. But I'm just not sure how widespread that discerning spirit is. Like my fear is that the zeal for doctrinal purity that exists in this congregation may be concentrated among just a handful of people. Now maybe it's pervasive. God, may it be so. But here's one thing that makes me worry that it isn't. Uh, I see so few Bibles or Bible apps open during Sunday morning sermons. Uh, and I get it. We put some, some of the verses up on the screen. So you're like, I see it there. But what the church is called to do in Acts 17, for example, and what we've asked you to do uh, on Sunday mornings is to take your Bible out for yourself while we're preaching. And the reason for that is so you can follow along and evaluate the claims that I'm making, that our preachers are making in context. Not just the isolated verses up on the screen, but in context, read it. And see if the passage is really saying what I'm saying that it's saying. Again, many of you do that. But sometimes I have conversations with Christians who posture themselves as zealous for sound doctrine. It's kind of like an identity marker for them. Great. But by the end of the conversation, I'm not sure that they would be able to spot an actual heresy if it was on the tip of their nose. Now, one mention of critical race theory, and immediately they've got three articles, 10 quotes, 15 statistics that everyone needs to know. But ask them when was the last time they read through the Bible cover to cover? What's the relationship between the Old and New Testaments? How pervasive is sin? What's the message of Jeremiah? I sometimes get blank stares from the people who are most vocal about the importance of sound teaching. And I'm confused about that. So who do we have in this congregation who is truly zealous for sound doctrine? Studying day after day to be thoroughly equipped with the biblical knowledge needed to identify serious error and refute it. I hope it's an army of men and women here that fit that description. I actually think it might well be so. But I'm convinced that we can grow in our zeal for doctrinal purity. To give just one concrete action step, if you've started coming to our church because we were wearing masks and you were fine with that, and 
You speak about controversial social issues in a way that seems acceptable to you, uh, but you've never read our statement of faith. Please do that. And then come to the newcomer lunch next week to talk through it with us. Ask questions that you have about it. Right? You should know that we here at North Sub don't see our theology and our philosophy of ministry and our stance on social issues like three equal legs on a stool and they're all kind of important, but none of them go. Our theology comes first and it drives everything else that we do. Okay, so that's what's good in Ephesus. Right? They have an enduring zeal for doctrinal purity. Now, what's bad? Verse 4, here it is. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You abandoned the love you had at first. What's this mean? Is the love they had at first, option A, their love for each other? Maybe. Some commentators say so. So if their problem is that they've lost their original distinctive love for each other, then maybe John perceives this to have become a church of uncharitable heresy hunters who are sticklers on doctrine but grouchy and judgmental toward each other. Not super hard to imagine, certainly plausible. But other commentators say, no, 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 the love they had at first must be their love for Christ. And on th that reading, maybe this church has preserved doctrine while losing devotion. Maybe they're obeying Christ out of loveless duty now instead of the delight that they once had when they were first saved. Which is it? I was eager, actually, for a chance to study this passage more deeply than I ever have before because I've never felt totally comfortable with either of those answers, uh, to be honest. Because if, if it's lost love for Christ, that's a big enough problem to lose your love for Christ that I'm, I'm, I'm confused about how they could get such glowing praise in verse 2. But if it's lost love for each other, wouldn't you expect there to be more elaboration on that in these seven verses? I, I kind of would. So then it's both, some commentators say. And that seems convenient, but maybe too easy of a solution to me. Like, I, I want to know what's the actual situation here that John is addressing. Like, what's actually going on in Ephesus that has actually been lost? And so I came across a third possibility this week. Uh, this is Greg Beal's take on the passage. It's a minority opinion, so weigh it, right? I was super skeptical when I first read it, but I became convinced by it because I think it's the interpretation with the most compelling scriptural support. So bear with me while I state this and then take a couple minutes to build the case. Greg Beale says that the love the Ephesians had at first is specifically the sort of love for Christ and others that witnesses to the world. I'll say it again. The sort of love that's lost is specifically the sort of love for Christ and others that witnesses to the world. In other words, the sort of love that shares the gospel with evangelistic zeal. Why does he say that? Again, fine if you're skeptical. I was too. Follow me here, though. Out of all seven letters, this is the one that emphasizes the lampstand image. Jesus' self-identification, we saw it, as the one who walks among the lampstands, verse 2. The consequence of disobedience in verse 5 is what? Removal of the lampstand. So whatever we think verse 4 means, the love you had at first, we have to be able to answer, what does it have to do with lampstands? when those aren't emphasized in any of the other letters to the same degree. Then the plot thickens with a parallel text. And this is what kind of tipped me over the edge. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 9 through 14. And tell me this isn't in John's mind as he's writing to Ephesus. Right? Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, Jesus said. 
and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Look at the connections here. Enduring hardship for the sake of Jesus' name. Major feature of uh, the letter to Ephesus. False prophets rising up. Major feature of the letter to Ephesus. The call to endurance. Major feature of the letter to Ephesus. The love of many growing cold. All in one place. John was there with Jesus when he said these words. These are just too many connections for me to believe that this doesn't somehow inform the letter to Ephesus. So, according to Jesus in Matthew 24, what happens when the love of many grows cold? Well, what happens is that only those who endure proclaim the good news of the kingdom in all the world as a testimony to all nations, right? Love of many grows cold, but some endure to the end, and they're saved, and they're presumably the ones, not the ones whose love grows cold, they're the ones who proclaim the good news of the kingdom. There's a close relationship here, in other words, between the proclamation and the love. And it's like J.I. Packer said when he said, when he, he was asked why we don't share the gospel more with our neighbors. He said it boils down to that we don't love God enough to love our neighbor enough. So the love that grows cold, I'll say it one more time, is specifically the sort of love that we had at first, you can remember it probably, that compelled us to share the gospel with those who needed to hear it. If that interpretation is right, as I think it probably is, then the possible removal of the Ephesians lampstand in verse 5 of Revelation 2 makes so much sense now. It's not just an arbitrary consequence, but it's actually a consequence that fits the situation perfectly. Why are none of the other six churches threatened with the removal of their lampstand? Because this is the church that was failing to be a light. And if a lampstand isn't giving any light, what's the point of keeping it there anymore? The conquering that the Ephesians are called to then in verse 7 is not just conquering persecution in some general sense, but rather it's conquering the temptation. Temptation that many, some, many of us maybe have felt to hole up in our fortresses of doctrinal purity while our lamp goes cold under the basket that we put it under. It's time for you are here number two today. Interesting, there's only two of them, okay? Uh, consider the love we had at first. The sort of love that made our founding members so passionate about there being a gospel light in the northern suburbs of Chicago that they mortgaged their homes. You heard the story? In the late 1950s, to build a church at the corner of Lake Cook and Waukegan. They were on fire to bring people to Christ. Cliff was there. Ask him. Or individually, think back to when you first came to faith and the love for Christ that you had that made you want to tell everybody what had happened to you. You remember those days? The love we had at first. Do we still have it? That's the you are here question. Many of us can probably think of someone in this congregation who has not lost the love that they had at first. Praise God. But I imagine there are some individuals in Ephesus who still had their first love too, right? 
that doesn't stop John by the Holy Spirit from addressing the Ephesian church as a whole. So what about our church on a corporate level? Do we still have the love that we had at first? Let's not sugarcoat it. Do you want me to sugarcoat it? Okay. We haven't baptized anyone in the last three years. We haven't baptized anyone who didn't grow up in our church in quite a long time. This fall, only 49% of our regular attenders could identify a relationship in which they were intentionally discipling another person. And the vast majority of even those 49% were discipling other people who were already Christians, which is important work. Those questions should make us ask ourselves, in what sense are we a functioning lampstand on the North Shore at this point in 2022? At this point, which actual unbelievers are actually encountering the light of Christ and hearing the actual message of salvation because our church is here? put myself through this little thought experiment the other day. Imagine if 50% of our congregation were blatantly disregarding Jesus' teachings on sexuality. Would I be tempted to call us a healthy church? So then why have I so often praised us as a healthy church? I started thinking to myself, well, at least 50% of us seem to be blatantly disregarding Jesus' command to make disciples. And that's the thing, this is only the first of the seven letters to the churches, but I can tell this is going to be an uncomfortable seven weeks for me, for me though. Because I've been here long enough now that whatever the Spirit shows us is wrong with North Suburban Church is really on me, to some extent. I'm not brand new here, right? It hit me all at once on Thursday night as I was at this pastor's conference this week. And at pastor's conferences, you can imagine, pastors ask each other how things are at the church, and you can get asked that 20 times, you're going to answer the same thing. You know, so I found myself saying the same thing dozens of times this week. You know, we're not seeing a lot of movement on measurables, but things feel like they're going really great. The elders, staff, congregations seem to generally think things are going great. It feels really healthy. That was my response, for whatever reason. After I had delivered that analysis over and over this week, I was like, wait, but I know there's only a large handful of people in our church who are actively engaged in investing in unbelievers and sharing the gospel with them. For all the other strengths of our church that are quite healthy, I know there's a major deficiency there. So why am I speaking as though we're healthy, period, end of sentence, as though our, our lack of attendance growth is just a function of circumstances beyond our control? start talking about numbers, I know, get uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. There's probably a church somewhere in which the members are aggressively loving their community and passionately sharing the gospel with their neighbors, and it's not resulting in increased attendance numbers. That, we're not that church. Uh, it's so normal here not to share the gospel that one can even rise to the top levels of leadership in our church without being meaningfully engaged with unbelievers on a regular basis. And to my shame, I realized this week that I've fostered an environment in which that can be the case comfortably. 
the reality is it should not feel comfortable to be a member at North Suburban Church and certainly to be an elder or staff member at North Suburban Church who doesn't have meaningful spiritual interactions with unbelievers, including sharing the gospel with them. And for me as senior pastor to say, well, I'm investing in unbelievers, so I've done my part, that's ridiculous. What a leader permits, he promotes. Say that all the time. If, if, If we're permitting people, especially leaders, to feel comfortable, despite not having meaningful interactions with unbelievers and sharing the gospel with them, Do we think the church is somehow going to outpace the leadership? So I repent. By my permissiveness on this, I have effectively promoted an atmosphere in which people are comfortable sitting back and throwing out suggestions of outreach programs the church could invest in, put on for the community, while never having to look in the mirror and say, I haven't actually brought an unchurched friend into my home or into my church or discussed the gospel with them in like 10 years. We are a lampstand, church. There's no point in our being here if we're going to put our light under a basket and treat this building as the place we all gather together to shelter ourselves from the crazy world out there. I'm sorry for the role I played in hindering us from putting our light on display. I hope you can sense that it really is my love for this church family and for our neighbors, coworkers who don't know Jesus, that's driving me to say what I'm saying here. And I'm saying it intensely because I think it's serious enough to warrant that intensity. Uh, Maybe you think I'm overplaying this, though. Fair enough. So let's see. How serious in God's eyes is a lack of love-driven witness? Final piece of the puzzle. What must be done? Verse 5 and verse 7. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Then two verses later, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I asked you a moment ago to think back on the love you once had, back when you were first saved. That's an important first step, to remember. Remember how far we've fallen. I'll tell you from where I've fallen. At 13, I remember literally shaking with nerves because my friend Brandon was coming over and he liked rap music and so I was going to play a Christian rap song for him on my stereo. I followed through with it though because I love Jesus and I love Brandon and I wanted him to know Jesus. At age 14, I remember working up the courage to get out of my mom's car for school wearing a Jesus t-shirt because I so wanted my friends to see it and ask me about it as a conversation starter. I, was so, I didn't know how to start the conversation. I thought maybe they'll ask me if I see my shirt. And so I got out of the car and, and shared with them how Jesus died for us and rose again to save us when they asked. And then at 15, I remember stopping at my friend Jeff's house and dragging him out of bed to come to my 6.30 a.m. Thursday morning Bible study each week because I so wanted him to know Jesus. And I knew I had written each lesson with him in mind. Y'all, in my early years with Jesus, 
it ate at me that I had friends who didn't know the Lord. I couldn't sleep at night if I wasn't sharing that news with them. I really loved them. It wasn't just out of compulsion. I really loved them, and I loved God. That's where I've fallen from. Where have you fallen from? Don't skip that step of looking back because it's that reflection on the heights from which we have fallen that is intended here to convict us in such a way that we're led to repentance, that we're led to doing the works that we did at first. Now, there are a lot of factors that might lead us to not do the witnessing that we did at first might keep us from that but whatever those are and, and we all have seasons I get you know you're going through a season of grief this isn't something you're going to walk out and with this burden laid on you that you know in the midst of all you're trying to figure out life in the midst of sudden loss of a loved one now you're supposed to go out of here feeling shame for not sharing the gospel with anybody it's, it's not that we're talking about over time the time has gone by and you're not sharing the gospel whatever reason there is for that whatever fear of disapproval we might have whatever pessimism about the person's potential to become a christian in the end all our hang-ups really amount to love deficiencies i mean did you see this the other day where the uh medical student uh was at the hockey game watching a hockey game and she happened to look at the opposing team's equipment manager's back of his neck she noticed a cancerous mole on his neck and so she wrote him a note telling him, get it checked out. She held it up on the glass. And she thereby saved his life. Uh, it was cancerous, and he had, had it removed, and because they got it so quickly, it, it, it was okay. Uh, would have died from it. Uh, that's awesome that she did that. But consider the alternative, right? What kind of monsters would we have to be to know that we're looking at cancer on someone's neck, but go home without saying something. Is there anybody in this world, much less anybody you love, whom you wouldn't talk to if you knew for certain that they had cancer that they didn't know about? Would the potential for rejection deter you at all? Yet, we've somehow become those monsters who see the cancer, who even hold the antidote in our hands. But we don't even love our neighbors and coworkers enough to let them know that they're terminally sick. And so, yes, this is that serious to God. Serious enough that if the church at Ephesus doesn't change, the risen Christ will personally come and remove their lampstand. That's what he says. What's the point of a lampstand that gives no light? And here's the reality. Near term or long term, I don't know. But that's what we face at North Suburban Church, and that's what every church on the North Shore faces. Eventually. What's the point in us being here if we're not going to be a light? The founders of this church didn't gather, and, and correct me, Cliff, did not gather in the late 50s, correct me if I'm wrong, and say the North Shore needs a fortress for Christians to huddle up and be safe from the world and congratulate each other for our doctrinal purity. I don't think that those were the early meetings that you guys had. They open up the word and sense the spirit saying the North Shore needs a lamp that shines Christ's light in the darkness. 
if we're not going to do that, there won't be a North Suburban Church for our grandkids. There just won't. That, that's not me being extreme. That's not me being pessimistic or alarmist. That's just math, that when you bury more than you baptize for enough years, it will eventually dwindle down to zero. And even more importantly than the math, that's the danger that Jesus warns us about. It doesn't have to be that way. Hear me. It doesn't have to be that way. Look at it. If the Ephesians conquer, they will get to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And you might say, well, won't all believers get that, to eat from the tree of life that's in the paradise of God, not just those who overcome their loveless failure to witness? And I think what John might say in response is something like, show me the true believer who doesn't share his or her faith. Does sharing your faith earn you heaven? Is that what I'm saying? No, not at all. Absolutely not. But sharing your faith is one bit of evidence that we really have the love for the Lord that we claim to have. Right, think about it this way. Imagine if I told Sarah today, hey, you know what I think I love more than just about anything in this world? The music of the Beatles. What Sarah would say to me is, Tim, in the almost 15 years that I've known you, you have never once mentioned the Beatles, for good or bad. It would be fair, wouldn't it, for her to be skeptical about whether I really have a deep and abiding love for the Beatles, uh, that if I can go that long without gushing their praise at some point. Yet, that's us. When at our funerals, our neighbors and coworkers here it said about us, he loved God more than anything in this world. And they're looking around at each other like, I shared a cubicle, I shared a sidewalk with him for 10 years and never heard a single mention of God. If the love that we had at first is restored, it will result in us talking to others about it. It just will. Big idea today is this while maintaining our commitment to the truth inside the church. Let's be a light to those outside the church. While maintaining our commitment to the truth inside the church, and I should have said even ramping it up, let's be more committed to doctrinal purity than we've ever been. Simultaneously, let's be a light to those outside the church. Nowadays, do you know how the church at Ephesus is doing? There's not a known Christian there, much less a church. If there is even a single Christian in Ephesus, he or she is in hiding. In other words, eventually, this once vibrant church did lose its lampstand for its failure to witness. And if they could, so could we. But that loss didn't happen right away. And hear this because this is just as important. Actually, it's really cool. In the short term, in the centuries immediately after receiving this letter, the church at Ephesus decisively repented in response to this. Second century Christian writings demonstrate that Ephesus did regain its first love and once again became a vibrant center of witness for centuries before it was lost. We can too. We can too. And when we do, we will gain assurance, deep assurance that we have the tree of life waiting for us in the paradise of God. It'll just be one more confirming indicator that that's exactly where we're headed.
that might even start tonight. Right? There's a little event going on tonight. What's the reason why we wouldn't invite a neighbor over to watch the Super Bowl? Right? Or go over to a house in the neighborhood where they're watching it and invite ourselves over. Right? Is there any reason why we wouldn't pray in advance of tonight for an opportunity to share about the hope we have because of the cross of Christ in some way, shape, or form at a Super Bowl party? be a light to those outside the church. Before I pray for us, let's just take just a moment of silent reflection, confession, before we sing a closing song that speaks of our pardon from sin in Christ. A few moments of silent reflection. Father, some of what we've seen this morning in this mirror has not been pleasant. And so we bring our confession to you. We agree with you about our sin and about the heinousness of it. And we repent of it. We turn from it and we throw ourselves on you on your mercy and grace. And as we do so, we do so not in abject fear of punishment, but actually in full confidence that you promise to hear us, that you promise to respond to us in grace because of the blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. We thank you that we can come before you on a morning like this one, lay ourselves bare before you, yet not leave with condemnation gripping our hearts, rather leaving with full assurance of pardon that comes from your gospel and from your promises. That if we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just and you will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we close out this service, Lord, help us to soak in your grace that washes over all the sin in our lives, including the sin of lovelessness that results in us not sharing your good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.